0: welcome to great minds and our guest today is rob perry rob is the founder and ceo of a company that we've come to know and love through our dear friend aaron reitkoff i'm talking about zomad and led by rob and the company he founded they really are redefining what the influencer space means in 2023 and doing it off a tech platform that rob and his team built that's uh, quite a powerful engine. So Rob, I'm sure we'll come back and talk about ZOMAT, Uh, But first and foremost, a hearty welcome. Oh, thank you, Matt. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. All right. So let's, uh, let's jump right in, Rob, and lots of places to start with you. But I thought starting with Kite Child, uh, a charity that I know is near and dear to you might be Uh, an interesting place to start our conversation. Um, As you know, we launched in Africa not too long ago. It's a market that we believe in passionately. But I'd love to start with your long association with that wonderful organization and what they do in Kenya. And uh, just talk a little bit about your involvement with Kite Child.
1: Wow. Yeah, nobody has ever asked me about Kite Child. That's awesome. So uh, yeah, the company was founded by uh, two very close friends of mine, Pollyanna and and uh, Jackie Jackie Herrera, largely in my living room. Uh, they were they had just graduated from UCLA about twelve years ago, and they had this vision. And originally, the vision was around uh, using social media technologies to connect orphanages to the uh, to the outside world. And but as it as it's evolved, it's become about sustainability. Um, they're largely focused in Kenya. They're just doing phenomenal things. So I, would, I would encourage your viewers just to check out uh, Kite Child, K-I-T-E-C-H-I-L-D. And uh, yeah, I'm really, really proud of these women. I, I think maybe most important to me, neither one of them even takes a salary. So they've been doing this just on their own time, uh, you know, for the last 12, 15 years. And it's just extraordinary, the progress they're making. They've got nothing in it at all. Again, there's no money to be made. They're just doing it for the good of
0: Kenya. So they've touched millions and millions of people uh, over that period. You've been involved, I guess, about 12, 13 years, Rob. Jackie came in in particular, I know, uh, comes with an anthropology background. How did someone graduating from UCLA with a BA in anthropology find you? How did that whole thing start? And uh, I love that that's been such an important part of your life all these years.
1: Yeah. So the, the real visionary behind it was Pollyanna. Uh, then as soon as Pollyanna articulated and started working on the vision, she brought Jackie in and Jackie fully embraced it. Uh, and the two of them have been working hard on it ever since. Um, I was actually just friends with them. And, uh, so, and, uh, I just got, you know, I, I also just fully embraced what they were doing. And, um, I know a little bit about social media. And so i was able to help them there but candidly matt i uh, even though i'm still on the board i can't take any any credit at all for anything that's happened the last five years i think i helped get it off the ground but these two women are are running and they've got plenty of other people working for them now but they're doing it all on their own
0: well we would love to tell their story on great minds rob maybe we do a follow-up with pollyanna and or jackie at your direction but i love that that's been part of your life And whether it was just helping it launch, and I suspect, knowing you a little bit, I suspect you're minimizing the contributions you've made over the years to their leadership. Uh, But uh, we love Africa and love that type of relationship. As you know, we have a big partnership with the Nelson Mandela Foundation and with another group, Education Africa, that we're very proud of. So uh, I love that we got a chance to start there and ask you something that evidently is not on the tops of questions that people ask you
1: yeah great i know you're just there last month but yeah i would i'd love for you to invite those two women onto your podcast i mean they would uh, they would relish that
0: moment thank you for asking about it matt C- consider it done so let, let's start to uh, uh turn the lens a little bit to business early on rob you worked at a, a great law firm that i always associated with the la games i think john argue was a legend who was a towering figure for the uh, 84 games in la uh, and was a partner at Latham and & Watkins. And I, I'd love to get a perspective on how that legal foundation that you established for yourself, great school in Chicago, uh, and then a great firm, Latham & Watkins, which I associate with sports, uh, which is why I sort of I'm sort of asking that. But uh, just as a matter of foundation, people always say, oh, it's great to have a legal foundation. Is that bullshit or is it true? And uh, I'd love to talk about your little chapter at Latham & Watkins. Uh, again,
1: something else nobody ever asked me about.
0: Yeah, uh, no, Latham, Latham started
1: me out in the, in the business world. Uh, I'll always cherish my time there. Uh, but candidly, I knew very early on I wouldn't be there long-term. Uh, you know, I think, uh, I think law school tends to attract a lot of very bright people, uh, but ultimately to be happy as a lawyer in my opinion, you really have to be ha- happy as a technician. Uh, the nature of legal work, particularly at a top law firm, uh, working for you know top clients that are on the Wall Street Journal every day, it really is about being a technician. You're, you're working on hundred you know hundreds of pages of covenants, making sure that yeah, every T is crossed and every I is dot. So a lot of a lot of people get into business law because of their interest in business and their interest in negotiating transactions. But if you if you like business, you like negotiating transactions, you're always gonna be wanna be on the other side of the table. You're always wanna, gonna wanna be the business person cutting up the fundamental deal terms rather than just negotiating covenants. That, that's my opinion, at least that was my perspective as a very young lawyer at Latham and I was looking for my opportunity to get out. I, I knew there wasn't another firm I'd go to, Latham was phenomenal, but I really wanted to be on the business side of it. And I, I started to do a little work in sports there we had uh, represented the World Cup at the time, um, but but candidly, if you're uh, if you're doing an M and A deal and you're buying a baseball team or you're buying a widget factory, there's no fundamental difference between the two. So it really wasn't sports to me. But then I got my big break through David Falk, and David. David is now. I had no idea you're going to ask about this, but David is now featured in the 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 a movie air that just came out with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. I have not seen it yet, but uh, you know, David was uh Michael Jordan's number one agent. Uh, David hired me uh, that I came in and worked for him for a, a period of years. And that's how I got introduced to the whole marketing world was through sports. So what I loved about it in contrast to my time at Latham is there was no investment bankers cutting up the deals. I was able to work directly, with uh, the athletes um, i participated in marketing meetings at quaker Oats. Um, once i actually flew michael jordan across the country to meet with phil knight at nike so it was uh, it was a time for me to really meet one-on-one with some of the greatest marketing minds in the world uh, and uh, ironically that's ultimately what led to zomad i, I learned early on uh, not just through michael i also represented other athletes like patrick ewing Patrick, for example, once I took on this round the world trip. So we went to Europe, we went to South America, we went to Asia. And, um, and what I learned you know, through experiences like that, that the real trendsetters are the local cool kids, not so much the macro mega athletes. And so on that trip with Patrick, I used the opportunity for Patrick to meet all the local cool kids in these different metropolitan markets. And I saw how that impacted sales. Um, as opposed to Michael was working for a very large company Nike Patrick was working for a new startup and uh but you know where we really got to see the impact of Patrick's meetings with these local cool kids in these different metropolitan markets directly on sales so that got me fascinated in the whole influencer world then around around that time 2000 2001 uh the tipping point came out by Malcolm Gladwell. I was really moved by that, and I knew my future was uh, was figuring figuring how to how to use these
0: local cool kids to to start trends. Uh, I, I love that evolution. So let's let's go back and dig in just a little bit on, on some of these touch points, cornerstones, if you will. Rob, uh, go back to that question of the value of a legal foundation i know the work you were doing at latham and watkins uh, and i love the bluntness of the description if you were buying a ball team or widgets the process was the same um but go back to that notion of a legal foundation do you think it's helped you
1: yeah i really i really do uh candidly uh, you know i haven't practiced law in a long time um you know i haven't i haven't ever had to hire an in-house counsel i'm knocking on wood I'm, I'm happy to also report we've never been sued. So I think having a legal mind helps you kind of direct the company in such a way to avoid legal legal mishaps. But I think the greatest foundation it provides is just work ethic and attention to detail, right, beyond anything, right? It's just, and it, you know, primarily what I'm looking to hire now, I, I, that's what you're looking at, those two factors, it's just work ethic and, and attention to detail.
0: So sort of sharpen your filter in a very visceral way.
1: Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Right, and it, that's that's really what drives success. It's people that you know are really, really focused and and and, uh, and paying attention to all all of the details.
0: All right, this is great. So we're starting to build that that Rob Perry narrative. You mentioned his name already, uh, David Falk and not only work with Michael, but Patrick Ewing and so many others. That was a real heyday, the, the heyday of ProServe and Mark McCormick and IMG was firing on all cinder, cylinders. There was Advantage, which was the predecessor, I think, to what became Octagon over time. That was a really exciting era in the sports marketing business, post 84 Olympics. The real, those 10 years was the heyday. ISL, flying high, all of it crashed as you know, as well as I, but there were a lot of high flyers, a lot of excitement. You were right in the middle of all that, Rob. Yeah. I'm shocked. You know that, that time so well. Yeah. I interviewed with
1: advantage as well. Um, when I went to work for David, he was technically, he was with Proserve, And so, uh, Donald Dell's company. Um, I think my, within my first two weeks of work, he approached me and told me he was going to spin the company off. Um, and then he did and formed a new company and uh so yeah it was really a really wild time uh, and yeah the, the and, you know
0: david david was really the top the top sports agent across basketball so you had these titanic figures donald dell uh one of them tennis and way beyond that you had mark mccormick this was a different era where these personalities in our industry they don't really exist in the same way today and people like David Falk. And was it fame that he spun off?
1: Yeah, it was, right. And ultimately, he sold fame to uh, SFX, I believe. So I, I was gone by then. But uh, yeah, so it went from pro-serve to pro-serve basketball and football to fame, um, and then ultimately to SFX.
0: So let's dig in a little deeper to something you said that you really saw and crystallized on your world tour with Patrick Ewing, and that's the power of folks like that and the importance of young people, the true influencers of culture and in turn of business. Right around that time also technology was starting to emerge somewhere along the line, you had the bizarre combination of instincts to recognize a trend, but to go from a guy who was always sort of a regular I'm not going to say analog person, but just a you know, in a different industry. You weren't in tech-driven industries, but you recognized the role that technology would play and built your own intellectual capability there and it put incredible teams together, culminating in the team at Zomad that built your tech stack. Where did those confluence of instincts come from? Had you know in the mid to late 90s that technology was going to really be the driver of the bus going forward.
1: So, look, it, 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 candidly, Matt, it, it took me a while to truly figure that out, and I made a lot of mistakes along the way. You know, I, I watched Friendster. If anybody remembers Friendster when it first popped up? Uh, then MySpace ruled the the day before Facebook came into the, into the picture. Twitter emerged a couple years after that. So, you know, I started to get to know these platforms, you know, very well. I started to dig in. Um, but never really had uh, the insight or vision to create my own technology. Not not at that point. So I was a I was a student of all these tech platforms. Um, I you know so around you know in the middle of all this from 2005 to 2008, I actually started an event based company uh, with the vision. So the the vision was an influencer roll up. I figured if I could have the coolest events in major markets around the world then uh, I would attract all the local cool kids, the local influencers. And I had this vision of being the NBA, the NFL of local cool kids around the world. And, uh, and, you know, we started in LA here and we started very, very strong. We were on the cover of people magazine every other week with, with things like Britney Spears breaking up with Kevin Federline at our events and every week. It was uh, major Hollywood a-list stars coming into our events. Uh, but the vision was uh, the vision was to use these events to attract all the trendsetters. But in the middle of all that is when social media truly blew up. Facebook had come onto the scene, and I realized that was God's gift to me. Right at that point, now uh, influencers can press buttons on a phone and reach millions. So uh, you know, an event strategy wasn't optimal, um, and so that's when I shut down that company uh, called Exeni X E N I I, and I started Zomad. So I believe I've said at conferences, including the conference I spoke at with you a couple of weeks ago, I've said repeatedly, I think we're the oldest influencer company in the world. Um, I found it in 2010 as an influencer company, not something that pivoted into that space. And, um, and but to answer your question, I got the tech wrong those first few years. Um, I, I was probably being cheap as an entrepreneur. I was trying to outsource the places I shouldn't have been outsourcing. And uh, then ultimately, I figured it out by 2016 that you know, I, I hired a deep full-time team. Fast forwarding today, I believe we're the deepest tech team in the influencer space. So we've got close to 60. We don't outsource at all. We've got 60, close to 60 full-time engineers, data scientists, and data analysts who've all built this tech infrastructure I'm really proud of. But it took a while. You know, I hired the four top senior years and two, senior engineers in 2016. They recruited the rest of these 55, uh, 50, 55 people over the next few years. That tech was operational in 2018, but it still took us a few more years to truly get it to scale. And, and the vision behind that whole tech was, was, look, I believe that influencer strategies are the future of media buys. Uh, so it's the, uh, you know, I saw this world where the, the, the demographics of the younger age groups, the Gen Zs and millennials, They're all using ad blockers. They're skipping through ads, living on TikTok and Instagram. And uh, you know, I had this belief that a lot of the digital strategies would lose efficacy over time and that we could be in a position to rise up and be be the primary media buy, much like digital strategies became the primary media buy after TV and radio. So that was the premise of it all. What I couldn't have foreseen at that time was the impact of these data privacy regulations, which are all hitting now. So when you combine those data privacy regulations along with those demographic changes, I truly believe the time has arrived for, for influencer strategies to, 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 uh, to be a, a huge part of, uh, of media buys.
0: So uh, you, you undersell your, your own sort of tech instinct at minimum, Rob. It, it took a while for all this to develop. I agree with you, uh, Facebook coming along in 2005, watershed moment you know, Twitter in 2010, the iPhone in 2006 watershed moment. Um, But somewhere along the line, you can really trace going back to your Patrick Ewing story about the seeing that connection with young people and seeing young people as the most important influence in culture. It's an interesting story because that goes back 30 years. ZOMAD goes back, give or take 12, 13 years. Um, it's a really interesting evolution, I think. Yeah,
1: and the, the vision not just about young people, but also about the the local cool kids, the community leaders, and a, and a, a local cool kid, as I'm using that term, could be a 55 year old housewife, right, but who's very prominent in the community and she's seen as a as a leader. So, uh, really, what we have focused on from the start, which is now becoming trendy, are uh, are, are nano and micro creators. Micros have been hot for probably five, six years now. But my vision, yeah, going back to the Patrick Ewing and Michael Jordan days, was always around these nanos—the very small creators. When we launched Zomad in 2010, it was all about the nanos. There was Michelle Fong. I'm not even sure Kim Kardashian was on the scene yet. Um, but, you know, and look, and we've we, we've had clients over the years that have wanted to work with macros. So, you know, we've worked with the Kardashians. We've worked with J Lo, with Diddy, Oprah Winfrey. Um, the kids in One Direction. So we have, but generally when we use those macros, it's much like we used Patrick Ewing or Michael Jordan back in the day, they're catalysts. They're catalysts to spur activity, to spur messaging um, from the the local community leaders.
0: Fantastic stuff. So I I wanna dig in more uh, and deeper on ZOMAD, but going back to those fame days, that was a, a five, six year chunk of your career. You were in a lot of really interesting rooms, and, and it made me think, Rob, when we were doing our, our crack uh, research team, was hard at work earlier, uh, preparing for today with you, it, it reminded me of the Hamilton line, you're in the room where it happens, I want to be in the room where it happens, and that was a big song and a big part of the second act in Hamilton. Is there a funny story that you remember? Lots went right. Once in a while, I got to think something went sideways. When you're dealing in that A-list celebrity world, not everything goes smoothly all the time as anticipated. Is there a funny story you can share without telling tales out of school that you know you remember from that era?
1: Uh, yeah, this is almost as if you're setting me up, but Canada, you, you obviously mentioned nothing to me ahead of time about what you are going to ask. But that's yeah, correct, I, yeah, that's I, correct. I'll tell you one story. So on that on that trip with Patrick Ewing, one of the stops was Japan, and we went to Tokyo, and then we went to Osaka. And everywhere we went, um, the local dignitaries would come out to meet Patrick. He was, a, you know, huge deal uh, at at the time; still is, still is today. And uh, I remember distinctly this the lunch we had at the top restaurant in Osaka with the mayor of Osaka right there at the table, and Patrick is sitting uh, sitting in front of me. And uh, I see Patrick looking at the menu. I had already looked at the menu, and I I knew his taste. This is a meat and potato guy. And he didn't know what any of this Japanese food was. He wasn't feeling it. And I continue to see him looking over my shoulder. He's looking, And finally, I look with trepidation over my shoulder to see what he's staring at. Right at the same time, he gets up from the table and excuses himself because he sees the golden arches of McDonald's outside. He leaves this restaurant walks over to McDonald's and gets a couple Big Macs and brings it right back. Oh, that's fantastic. I just thought, man, that was, and that all ca- candidly happened in real time. Uh, no setup. I always thought, man, if there were cameras there, that would have been the greatest McDonald's commercial. And and the, you know, the, the local Japanese officials, uh, they treated it. They, they thought it was hysterical. So they weren't at all insulted. Patrick was very apologetic. He just didn't know what the food was. That's one of my favorite stories of those days.
0: Great story. And uh, knowing we do business in Japan, too, we've had Advertiser Week in Tokyo since 2016. Culturally, there's no way they would challenge Patrick Ewing. No, no, no. They were really, yeah,
1: really polite and understanding. And, yeah. Yeah, and you sat there at that table and devoured those those two
0: Big Macs. <laughs> Let's uh, go from uh, Big Macs to a big technology platform. And I don't want to gloss over a comment that you made, 60 engineers. Talk about the depth of the tech team that you've built at ZOMAD, and how that gives you a competitive edge in the marketplace, Rob. Because I think that's, you have a real competitive edge. Tech-driven, there's the vision, but there's the underlying tech engine, that Ferrari that you put under your hood. Can we dig in and talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm really, really proud of them. They are the heart of this company. Like I said, I made that bet on them back in 2016 and a couple took a couple of years before the tech was truly operational. And I'm, I'm proud to say that here we are seven years later and all four of those top engineers are still with us. I'm knocking on wood. Um, I'm actually in, uh, tomorrow night I actually fly over to Vietnam where they're located and, uh I'm taking the whole group of them all roughly 60 people to a resort this weekend, just to have a little bit of fun, fun, fun retreat, but they are just phenomenal. Um, I would put them up against anybody in Silicon Valley, anywhere in the world. Um, The algorithms they're creating are, are, are are game changing. So I think, you know, I think I can, we can dig into more, more if you'd like about what is, what is so special about this technology. But what I love about the most is them as people. They are just phenomenal people and they're, they're loyal and they, they've created a tremendous culture there in, in, in Saigon. Um, just wonderful, wonderful people. Right? So it's just, um, you know, we don't have any, nobody ever leaves, you know, very, very rarely. And so you've got that continuity over time and uh, really, really proud of the platform they've created.
0: So you, y- Headed to Saigon. Talk about the emergence of that part of the world as really a vibrant, vibrant part of the global digital economy. You know, n- not only Vietnam but everything around it: Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines. Southeast Asia is a very hot area right now.
1: Yeah, it, no, it it truly, truly is. I don't, I don't know that I can speak with a whole, a whole lot of intelligence as to the other surrounding countries. But as I said, I, I wouldn't trade. I wouldn't trade these people for uh, any engineers anywhere in the world. It, it's just truly phenomenal. And I think a lot of it, which probably relates to some of those other Southeastern countries, is just the culture, right? Again, it comes back to what we talked about with, you know, what a lot of young lawyers learn. Uh, it's just, it's the work ethic. It's the tension to detail um, and this commitment to do to do well. And, and it's loyalty. It's a loyalty that I, I think is a little more rare here uh, in, in the United States. Um, but it's yeah, it's those uh, so a lot of it. I think a lot of the, the cultural norms there, which I do I think do cross over into the different Southeastern countries, are what's behind generating why they're they're so good in the tech space.
0: Great, great, great answer and a, and a, a, a telling commentary about loyalty over on this side of the uh, ocean. So let's dig it a little bit more into that algorithm and maybe Rob, what we do is sort of t- talk half-tech and maybe give us a few examples. I love the work that Zomad did during COVID um, around vaccination and, and, um, and I know you've got all kinds of examples working with Fortune 100 brands. So maybe just dig a little bit more in the tech and give us, I don't wanna say case study, but give us you know, one or two, hold our hand down the pathway you know, with a couple of Zomad success stories. Sure,
1: sure. Well, look, look. The primary purpose of the tech again is behind this vision. of This being the future for media buys. Um, the unfortunate history in influencer marketing is that it evolved out of PR. So it, it 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 was it was initially used for content purposes. It was never the leading driver to the change in consumer behavior that the brands wanted. That that's changing now, but so the history of uh, influencer marketing is it came up through it came up through PR. So it never really had the right budgets. So yeah, we made this budget, that, this bet that it would be the future of medium buys, and that's but and that's now happening. But candidly, Matt, up until a year and a half ago, I don't think we had ever spoke to a media agency. Maybe one for Clorox about three years ago, but now we're having regular talks all the time with media agencies and. Uh, Um, and uh, the big holding companies are going a little bit of an acquisition spree. WPP just bought two influencer companies over over the last month. So a lot of this is changing now. Uh, But to answer your question on the the tech and what makes it special, so the the tech largely has been created to allow to do massive campaigns, not the 5, 10, 20 creators that that were originally a part of the uh, uh, influencer marketing when it first evolved, but think hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of creators And nano. So like we're working right now with a major fast food company over a national campaign. Uh, We've got uh, got one of the leading healthcare companies is looking to reach people in different regions around the country. And whether it's national or whether it's regional, the strategy is typically around getting a lot of these nano creators. Uh, They have much higher engagement. They're hot for the same reason that micro became hot a few years ago. Right, they're trusted more by their followers. They're not as, as much seen as hired guns. A lot of the nanos we're activating have never been paid to post before, so they have a genuine relationship with their followers. They know their followers, and 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 the numbers back that up. The ROI on each one of these campaigns, uh, uh, just keeps keeps going up. The more we rely on nanos and micros, um, one example is MyFitnessPal. a they've been a tremendous client of ours. Um, and they recognized early on the value of going big on nanos and micros. They'll use more nanos and micros when uh, to maximize clicks and downloads. And I think they'll use macros more for general awareness purpose. So we do do macros with them as well. We're not exclusive to nanos and micros, but in my opinion, the uh, the future of driving behavioral change is around nanos and micros. And so the tech, the the tech first of all allows us to identify uh, influencers anywhere in the world. We've been hired by the the country of Bangladesh to map out and identify the top five thousand creators across the country. Um, during COVID, we were asked to do that in the rural parts of Alabama and Georgia and Texas, where they were having vaccination issues, and so we would we would uh, identify the local community leaders, people really trusted by people living in that community um, to talk uh, about the uh, their own feelings on vaccinations, uh, the success of vaccinations. Um, and in some of those in some of those areas in which we did it it was pretty hostile. The, the, the general opinion was hostile towards towards vaccine. Um, but the creators all did the messaging in such a way not to uh, not to offend anybody. They celebrated the personal choice in deciding whether the vaccine was right for you, but simply explained the reasons why it was right for them. And so we saw extraordinary success there. And what the tech really allows us to do is to architect these campaigns in such a way so that we're hitting that target consumer or that target citizen with multiple posts from multiple creators. That's, that's the key. So it's um, something unique to us called our audience overlap uh, uh, technology. And it allows us to again craft these campaigns so that we're we're, we're getting we're getting that multiplier effect. The so one one citizen is going to see different posts. It's not the same as seeing the same TV commercial over and over again because you're seeing different creative from different creators, and that's really what dr- what drives the behavioral change. We're seeing that across the board um, in the private sector um, as well as in the examples we just cited in the in the in the, in the public sector.
0: That's an amazing story. Rob, you touched on it, but can you break down nano and micro for us? Sure, sure. A, a lot of people in the industry di- disagree
1: a little bit on the exact definition, but generally, nanos are considered to have followings between one thousand and ten thousand. So that's not an awful lot, right? A lot of people have followings in that space. So it, they really are truly citizens. They're consumers. They're not. They're not professional creators, and that's what makes them so potent in spreading messaging. So nano's up to about 10,000 in reach. Um, micro uh, micro is, is generally defined as up to 100,000, but a lot of people are defining it up to 50,000. And then they've got 50 to you know 200,000 in another category, 200,000 to a million. So there's all kinds of ways to break down those fears. <clears throat> but generally when we construct campaigns we're looking at nanos and, and micros of, with under 50,000 reach, and a lot of them being nanos under, under 10,000 reach. And that's why the tech is so important because you can't do that manually. Uh, when, you're doing, when you're putting together hundreds or thousands of, of those nanos, um, the, the, you need a, a technology infrastructure to effectively manage that size of an army.
0: Fantastic stuff. Tell me how you feel about the business now that a lot of areas encountering headwinds in our industry. You said something important that Zomad's place in the ecosystem of media buying is a safe one from a data security privacy vantage point. A lot of other platforms very challenged in that area. Talk about that as a as a weapon, if you will, for Zomad.
1: Yeah, so there's no conflict at all with any of the data privacy rules. I mean, we are we are the consumer revolt against data privacy restrictions, right? Because consumers opt in; they choose to follow these creators. They're they're wanting to see content from these creators, um, and the data is all anonymized. So we we will never we'll, we will never target Susie Jones in in Des Moines. Right, Um, but we will. We we, but we can use the data to be very precise in targeting certain demographic attributes. So um, so there's no conflict at all with any of the data privacy regulations that are disrupting the digital industry, the digital media buys, you know, more broadly. So uh, yeah, that's why uh, that's why it's, it's undergone such tremendous growth over the last year or two, and why I'm 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 so optimistic about the future over the next few years. And you know da- the data privacy regulations have just begun to kick in, and 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 as as that comes and as cookies truly become obsolete, right? It's uh, you're going to see uh, exponential rise in in the developments that I've talked about. It's just going to get more and more impactful. These using influence mass level deploying them deploying very large armies to affect behavioral change, and and that's what's been so fascinating about you asked me about the public sector work. The this kind of goes back to what I felt as a young lawyer at Latham, where I uh, I wanted to get around the investment bankers, and in the same way, the public sector represented a way for us for me to prove out this hypothesis I had that we would be the future of media buys, because in a lot of these public sector campaigns we've had working for cities and and and, and counties and states around the country, we were their primary media buy. So we, uh, you know, in one example in New Jersey early on, Governor Murphy had hired us. We started out working for the state of California, and then Governor Murphy hired us in New Jersey. Fast forward to the day, we've had now nine or ten campaigns from New Jersey. But in some of those instances, we had 100% of the budget. So uh, Governor Murphy would, uh, he wanted to, the, his citizens to download an app, and uh, he put it on his, a press release and did a press conference. And no offense to Governor Murphy, but the needle didn't move. But but he also had the foresight to hire you know to hire these armies armies of creators that we were managing. They all spoke about the app and the um, and the, the download search. and so it's been the same story since then. It was the same story with vaccinations. And the great thing about us working in the public sector is we had access to a lot of data that we don't have in the private sector. So we had access, for example, throughout COVID to daily vaccination rates. And we saw that when creators posted in large numbers, and that's the key, one or two is not going to do it. It had to be a large number of creators posting at the same time, vaccination rates went up. And then if they were silent for the next week or two, the rates would come back down. Maybe my most favorite example uh, is in a southern state. Uh, I won't mention this state right here, but in this southern state where there's a lot of vaccine hostility and uh uh, the, the state had been backlogged in approving our content, and so we had, the creators had been creating all this content, but the state wanted to approve it before it went live, and they approved it all at one time. And and so the and it, so the content went up over 400% in a moment, 400% over the next highest moment in the past, and the vaccination shot up. So I, I, wish, I wish this were visual. I could show you that graph. But anyhow, all kinds of anecdotes, and you know, again, how it relates back to the analogy I was using for my time at a time at Latham, where I wanted to avoid the investment bankers. It us working in the public sector allowed us to get out of the ecosystem that rules the the private sector and the CPG world, and uh, and really deploy uh, influencer activations as a primary media buy. So now what we're doing and, uh, is we're telling that story to the private sector. So we're going, you know, in a road show and. We're showing what the public sector has done, and you know, and I, I think more and more we're seeing our private sector, our CPG clients, uh,
0: uh, follow this the same lead
1: that uh, the, our our public sector clients have have set.
0: Absolutely fantastic stuff! Uh, it is a Ferrari engine, and uh, I feel like we're watching the future of the industry uh, unfold right before our eyes here and. Uh, I love this conversation, Rob. Thanks so much for joining us on Great Minds. This was super interesting. No, thank you very much for having me, Matt, and asking questions I've never been asked before.